Hello, and welcome to New Books in Global Ethics and Politics. My name is John McMahon, Visiting Assistant Professor of Political Science at Beloit College, one of your hosts for the channel. I'm a former fellow at the Center for Global Ethics and Politics at the CUNY Graduate Center, which sponsors the podcast and is part of the Ralph Bunge Institute at the Graduate Center. Today, I'm speaking with Mary Hawksworth, Distinguished Professor of Political Science and Women's and Gender Studies at Rutgers University, about her new book, Embodied Power, Demystifying Disembodied Politics, out from Routledge in 2016. The book examines, as Hawksworth writes, the occlusion of embodied power in the discipline of political science and a lack of attention to race, gender, and sexuality in a discipline that claims power as a central analytical concept. Hawksworth traces both the history and the present of the field of political science and inquiry into politics more broadly in the social sciences today in order to examine the ways that it misses, obscures, masks, and disappears forms of power in state practices that create various kinds of social hierarchies, turning instead to intersectionality, women of color, feminism, post-colonial theory, and decolonial theory, Hawksworth uses these analytic lenses as a way to examine the processes of racialization, gendering, and sexualization that are at play in the practices creating these kinds of hierarchies and modes of power. In doing this, she analyzes the way that supposedly neutral categories, concepts, and methodologies in effect mask the ongoing power of the process, these processes of racialization and gendering. Along the way, Hawksworth engages in a, with a wide array of particularly pressing political issues, from voter ID laws, to poverty, to the racialization of the criminal justice system, to methodological and other forms of nationalism that mask the violence inherent in nation-building projects. Hope that you enjoy the interview, and I would strongly urge you to go out and read this really fascinating book, which is, on the one hand, an incredible political analysis of the present, at the same time that it is a discussion of the kinds of political thinking that we need in order to grasp these political issues, at the same time that it's also a critique of mainstream American political science. So the book is really doing a lot, not something that I hope you get a sense of from the interview, but which you would definitely get a sense of um, from getting your hands on a copy of this really excellent book. I'm now joined by Mary Hawksworth, Distinguished Professor of Political Science and Women's and Gender Studies at Rutgers University, who is the author of Embodied Power, Demystifying Disembodied Politics, out from Routledge in 2016. Mary, thank you so much for joining us on New Books in Global Ethics and Politics. Thanks so much for inviting me, John. So I'll start by the traditional kind of new books first question, and that is, um, could you please tell us a bit about your intellectual background and more specifically, how you came to write this particular book? Well, I am a, trained as a political scientist. I finished my undergraduate studies in 1974, went on to graduate school at a time when One might say that civil rights activism, feminist activism, questions about race, gender, sexuality, were absolutely part and parcel of American public life and public concern. But in graduate school, within a department of political science, all of those interests seemed to disappear. The discipline of political science itself seemed remarkably uninterested in understanding dynamics of race gender, class, sexuality. 
So like every good graduate student, I was disciplined mm -hmm. into a particular way of thinking, maybe not quite as disciplined as some might have hoped. But I went on to teach for 20 years at the University of Louisville in Kentucky. Louisville was at that time under court ordered desegregation. And even though one would think in a city that was 30% African-American, that the University of Louisville, which was called a municipal university with a real urban mission, would have something like 30% students of color matriculating. In fact, we only had 6% African-American students in the school at that time. So as a young professor, I got involved in activism about opening the university to our local constituencies, fighting racism in Kentucky and in the United States more generally, trying to make the university more welcoming to women faculty who were also very few in number. At that point, we didn't even have sexuality studies. So part of a, an activist cohort of scholars who were trying to open up higher education for people who were sometimes let in the door, but certainly not made very welcome. So we fast forward four decades. So you know, we've been in the profession a long time. And although women's and gender studies has transformed dramatically over the past 40 years, Critical race studies have transformed dramatically over the last 40 years. Political science has remained remarkably the same. It still doesn't engage issues of race, class, gender, ethnicity, sexuality. And indeed, the, uh, Diane Penderhughes, who was president of the APSA, has that honor created a task force on political science in the 21st century. And what that task force demonstrated was that the journals in political science don't publish feminist work, don't publish critical race work. The major graduate programs that are producing the scholars who are getting jobs don't teach race, gender, ethnicity, class, much less sexuality and politics. Uh, they did studies of textbooks being taught in undergraduate classrooms, which also say nothing about race, gender, ethnicity class. So this book grows out of lots of years of trying to make sense of why a discipline like political science that is supposed to be interested in the study of power in all of its manifestations ignores what I'm calling in this book embodied power, practices of the state, by the state, that actually create political hierarchies, create groups that are organized by advantage and disadvantage, domination and subordination. Why that kind of power is not studied by the field that I specialize in. Thank you. And I, I appreciate the extent to which that introduction you gave us kind of highlights the disciplinary politics of this book, because as someone trained in a political science program, um, I have the same kind of, you say it very beautifully early on, disidentification with disciplinary norms 
concerning disembodied politics. And so while there are a number of kind of stakes of this book, certainly for me as a reader, kind of the question of the field and um, endeavor of political science was very central. So maybe if we can kind of keep going down that route for, for a little bit, uh, you talk about the necessity of moving away from kind of the traditional models of the political or of power that prevail in the discipline of political science. What uh, what is it about those mainstream understandings of the political or power that cause us to miss uh, embodied power? It's a great question and a really tough one in that what I try to argue in the book that political science is complicit in circulating and accrediting particular ways of seeing that quite literally make processes of racialization, gendering, sexualization invisible, so that it's the analytical concepts used by researchers themselves that push certain power hierarchies below the threshold of intelligibility. So to give a few examples that, that might help flesh this out, um, political scientists often suggest that the approach to the study of the political world is neutral, is passionate, objective, that the very methods of political science themselves are designed to promote objectivity, control any form of subjective bias. So it makes you think that when you are studying the political world, as presented by political science, you're getting to the world as it is with no filters whatsoever. But if you actually look at the history of political science, you see that the construction of some of the most basic concepts in the discipline were themselves raced and gendered from the very beginning. So one chapter in the book, provides what I call a critical history of political science that goes back to some of the formative authors in the late 19th, early 20th centuries, who quite literally define democracy as an accomplishment of, quote, the Teutonic race, which was, um, oh, I suppose you could say a poetic way of referring hmm. to white Anglo-European North American men. And they didn't say this idly, like a little throw off. They actually wrote multiple books that claimed that white men had a capacity for self control and self governance that other races lacked. Um, people like Bryce and Burgess, who are sometimes called fathers of political science insisted that the making of the democratic nation state was something that was possible only by advanced civilizations, by which they meant uh, certain Northern European countries, the United States, Great Britain, and Australia, you know, very small cohort of nations, and that the success of these democracies literally require homogeneity. So 
that citizenship was restricted to white men of property was not, not a coincidence. It was deemed as essential for the success of the democratic project. The disenfranchisement of women, the disenfranchisement of people of color, of formerly enslaved peoples, were all part of a plan to secure a white race nation in a, in, on the belief that this was the only way that the nation could succeed. So there was a racial hierarchy embedded in the quote, Republican project, indirect democracy. Uh, sometimes it was even called democracy pure and simple. And that kind of a commitment led to some very, very peculiar, I guess you could call them shenanigans on the part of political science. Uh, Bryce was a constitution scholar. He was keenly aware that the post-Civil War amendments, the 13th, 14th, and 15th amendments that ended slavery, barred indentured servitude, created a promise of equal citizenship, and voting rights for African-American men, he was convinced that that formal equality actually posed a threat to this advanced civilizational accomplishment that he called democratic governance. And he was one of the first people to theorize how to create colorblind mechanisms that would actually exclude black men from voting rights. He knew that race could not be used as a criterion of exclusion because of the 13th, 14th, and 15th amendments, but he thought mechanisms were needed nonetheless. So mechanisms like poll tax, mechanisms like literacy tests were actually adopted in the United States, and kind of surprisingly, Massachusetts was the first state to adopt those kinds of mechanisms to keep blacks from voting. It was race neutral because being literate supposedly had no racial dimension to it. Owning property supposedly had no racial dimension to it. So they actively encouraged states, not only in North America, but also in Australia and South Africa, states with multiracial populations, to adopt these legal mechanisms to keep people of color out of democratic practices. So that, of course, is not a neutral approach to the study of the state. There's nothing objective about it. It is shoring up a form of white supremacy, but masking it behind a label that sounds abstract and universal. You know, who could be opposed to democratic governance? And by calling it democratic governance, all the racial inequity, all of the violence of the state that's being used against uh, formerly enslaved people, against immigrant populations, also used to keep women out of the political process, all of that get, gets masked and I mean, you could even say disappeared by this supposedly neutral political science. Uh, so it's, it's a distorting mechanism that hides what the state is doing under the language of inclusive participation.
Right. And one of the really important things that I think your book is doing is showing that there's that critical history, but it's a critical history that is constitutive of and continues to inform and live on in political science today. And so in the second chapter, you discuss uh, methodological nationalism and methodological individualism. So could you perhaps kind of explicate for us how those um, epistemic and methodological commitments in political science today kind of carry on this masking of processes of racialization and gendering. Right. Many of us would like to believe and maybe are even willing to acknowledge that there was this kind of racialization in the past, but we like to think, well, it's all different now. I mean, there's been progress. We've had a civil rights movement. We've had the feminist movement. We've moved into a world of meaningful equality, and the contemporary polity is light years away from uh, what happened in the late 19th and early 20th century. So one of the things that I try to do in the book, and it's not a very happy task, but is to show that we still have ongoing in the United States right now, and I tend to focus on the U.S. because the U.S. proclaims itself to be the cutting edge of democratic practices in the world, indeed so cutting edge that we send out, quote, experts, unquote, to help democratize other nations. So I focus on a whole host of policies in the United States that continue to create racial and gendered hierarchies. And these run from remarkably contemporary efforts at voter suppression so 22 states in the United States have passed laws that make it harder for people to vote. Uh, these states require presentation of a particular kind of ID to be able to cast your ballot, an ID uh, sometimes that involves some, something like a, a right to carry a gun can be used as an ID at the polls in Texas. But People of color who don't have driver's licenses and who don't have permits to carry guns and who may live at some distance from state offices are actually inhibited from voting by these kinds of efforts. And there used to be a protection growing out of the Voting Rights Act of 1965 that was called preclearance when states would produce a piece of legislation that looked like it might have a disparate impact on voters of color. And these were states that had histories of discrimination uh, over the 20th century. The Justice Department of the United States federal government used to be able to go in and stop the implementation of these kinds of measures. But just in the last five years, the US Supreme Court has said that that preclearance provision is no longer needed. It's outdated, they have suggested. So these new laws that make it so much harder for people of color to vote are operative. Now, there's ongoing litigation about this. Uh, it's possible that they will get struck down. In fact, one state has just down uh, these voter suppression mechanisms, but it's a state-by-state -state struggle because the Supreme Court has already said that it doesn't have a problem with 
with these kinds of measures. So until another case comes back up and we have a different kind of Supreme Court majority, that kind of a racialized policy is still operating. Beyond the problem of voter suppression, if you uh, think about public schooling in the US, this is now 60 years after the Brown v. Board of Education decision that said, uh, separate but equal was not acceptable educational policy in the United States. 80% of African-American kids are in my majority minority schools, schools that are majority uh, students of color. The vast preponderance, over 60% of white kids are in white majority schools. So our school system is every bit as segregated in the 21st century as it was in the 20th century with massively negative consequences for inner city kids coming up in low income areas. The school boards are often controlled by state legislation, but the Supreme Court has said states don't have to redistrict schools if they don't want to in order to achieve meaningful integration in the schools. The, the national move in support of charter schools has further exacerbated racial segregation and class segregation in schools. So you have that kind of racialized policy playing out in the education system. In the criminal justice system, it's even more pronounced. Uh, we have 60 years of data demonstrating that whites, African-Americans, and Latinos commit about the same amount of crime, about 6% of each of those uh, groups, white, African-American, and Latino, 6% are involved in criminal activity of some sort. Yet during this time, and during an era where criminal violence has been diminishing pretty powerfully, there's been a huge move to incarceration and the vast preponderance of people incarcerated are people of color. So if you're a white male, you have like a one in 106 chance of ending up in jail. If you are a Latino, you have one in 30 chance of ending up in jail. If you're a black man, you have a one in nine chance of ending up in jail. And if you're a young black man between the ages of 19 and 30, you have a one in six chance of ending up in the prison system. Not because you're more likely to have committed a crime, but because you're much more likely to be policed, to be stopped on the street. If you resist arrest, if you claim you're an innocent person and you uh, give some lip back to the arresting officer, that lands you in police custody and things can get a lot worse from that point on. So. Uh, you can look at housing policy, you can look at transportation policy, you can look at employment policy, education policy, criminal justice policies. The more you study these policies in depth, the more you see state complicity, and by state I mean federal government, state government, municipal governments in the U.S. actively participating in unequal treatment despite the fact that we supposedly have equal protection of the law in our country. Right, and so, so something that's important that's going on in the book is, you know, you, you note that at least in its self-image, 
political science um, should be attending to and investigating and analyzing um, all of these dynamics of racialization and gendering uh, that you detail in the book. And yet uh, it doesn't. And in the second chapter, there's this kind of close reading you give of the 2011 APSA task force report. So I was wondering if you could talk about maybe the history of that report and the way that you read it in relation to questions of embodied power in the book. Uh, one of the things the book tries to do in order to problematize what I call mainstream American political science, and I qualify the approach to political science because, of course, uh, the study of politics is a global phenomenon, and people in lots of the different parts of the world study politics quite differently than uh, the major discipline does in the U.S. So I, I want to emphasize that I, my, the target of my second chapter is really a very American form of political science. And to frame what American political science does, I contrast it with um, decolonial theory and post-colonial theory, which are two approaches. One, uh, decolonial theory coming out of Latin America, post-colonial theory coming out of South Asia and more recently Africa as well, both of which take the question of race seriously and investigate it not as a biological concept or a physical attribute, but as a process of racialization, that it is itself the result of state action, in particular of colonization. And these approaches look at Spanish and Portuguese colonization of Latin America, British and Northern European colonization of Asia and Africa, and show how categories of race were quite specifically created as techniques of power that shore up the authority of the colonizer. So I first demonstrate how lots of scholars in particular regions of the world are keenly attuned to how racialization is a process involving state action and contrast that with the United States, where mainstream political science ignores race, and the, the real puzzle is why. And this task force report on political science in the 21st century was commissioned in 2011 to investigate how it could be that a process that seems so powerful globally, racialization, receives so little attention in our discipline. And it was quite an eminent task force and they did a very serious study, not only documenting the non-examination of race, but they also tried to explore why this was happening. And they advanced several hypotheses. Uh, one hypothesis was straightforwardly that race is a biological category and hence, it has nothing to do with politics. Uh, the technical language they use is uh, it's exogenous, this outside politics. So you don't have to study race. A second explanation was that uh, political science studies those who have power. And precisely because few 
African-Americans and Latinos hold elective office. There's no particular reason to study them. We're studying the people who do have power. Or another hypothesis was you only study race when it, quote, matters, unquote. And if it's the case that Black office holders and Latino office holders behave in office exactly the same way that white office holders behave, there's no reason to study them. Yet another uh, explanation that was offered was that political science studies uh, statistical patterns in the electorate, statistical patterns in office holding. And so they're studying averages and anything that falls outside those averages, anything that might be called an outlier or even worse, anything that deviates from the norm or from the average just gets neglected. So what I wanted to do in the book was to contest all of those framings of race because each and every one of them literally makes processes of state racialization invisible. So if we take just the last example, talking about political science studying averages, well, that makes it sound like the white men who are studied primarily by US political scientists are the average. But statistically, white men are just a small part of the population. In the US, white men are about 25% of the adult population. Women and men of color make up the 70, 75% of adults. So even if you were really studying averages, you wouldn't be restricting your attention to white men. So something else is going on to skew vision in a way that makes the white man what I call the unmarked norm. Um, it makes the white man seem to represent the average when in fact, statistically, that's a problematic claim. So one chapter in the book focuses on conceptual practices of power, particular ways of organizing empirical data that I think make it impossible for well-disciplined political scientists to see how racialization, gendering, and sexualization are operating in the world. So if we start with even the most basic example of categorization, when you're in grad school and you're taught that you need to investigate the empirical world, the first thing you're supposed to do is develop a system of classification where you set up categories that are supposed to be mutually exclusive. So every piece of data has to fit in to one block in your category and cumulatively exhaustive. They cover all the possibilities. And by mutually exclusive and cumulatively exhaustive, the suggestion is that each piece of data is discrete and would not ever fall into multiple boxes. There'd be no overlap. It would be discrete variables, discrete data. But coming out of critical race theory, and particularly out of black feminist critical race feminism, the concept of intersectionality emphasizes that systems of power are mutually constituted. 
racialization is gendered, how men and women are constructed through processes that treat them unequally are different. Black men tend to encounter the state through incarceration. Black women tend to encounter the state through processes of social welfare, child welfare, transportation issues. So you have different state processes that can affect low-income African-Americans in a gendered way. So African-American women experience the state quite differently than African-American men. But if you're treating race as a single category, it is often black men's experience that gets logged in as political, while black women's experience gets driven below the threshold of visibility. And it's the categorization system itself that is the problem. Law professor Kimberly Crenshaw coined the term intersectionality in the uh, late, 18, uh, late 1980s and early 1990s precisely to draw attention to the fact that the way the law was using racial classification schemes and sex classification schemes, discrimination against Black women became absolutely beyond remedy. So she pointed out in a host of cases that when Black women filed discrimination suits, discrimination complaints, to suggest that they were being discriminated against on the basis of race and sex, the courts would say, well, what Black women are experiencing isn't being experienced by Black men, so it can't involve racial discrimination. And what Black women are experiencing isn't being experienced by white women, so it can't be sex discrimination. So they would end up literally throwing out the complaint, saying it didn't meet the standard of either race discrimination or sex discrimination. And the problem was that the Black women were being discriminated against on both bases, but the legal categories required suits to be filed under one or the other. So to the extent that political scientists are creating categorization schemes that treat race, sex, class, nationality, ethnicity as discrete variables, they literally cannot see mutually constitutive power relations and the state's complicity in making those power hierarchies. Thank you. I, I'm thinking that perhaps it might be useful uh, to kind of concretize some of these discussions with some of the uh, examples that you're working through in the book. So could you perhaps maybe, and perhaps if I'm, you know, I might be setting up too much of a, of a dichotomy here, but walk us through maybe how a kind of mainstream American social science approach would deal with the relationship between race, gender, and biology, and then how intersectionality uh, would offer us a more critical reading of that relationship. Well, uh, one of the ways that political science, I guess you could say mirrors public opinion more generally, is that most people, most of the time, think that race and sex are biological categories, 
that they are matters of self-evidence that you know someone looks and sees either a black person or a white person either a brown person or a white person either a man or a woman so that these are easy binary categories that are matters of empirical observation so their race and sex are treated as physical attributes personal properties characteristics of specific individuals and what uh, critical race and feminist theorists try to show is that the very categories of race and sex are themselves products of history products of a way of constructing science since the 17th century uh, that has now come to be naturalized so one chapter in the book traces the history of biologism or biological determinism uh, prior to the 17th century human beings were thought of in terms of relations to the divine their most singular features had to do with their souls souls of course were not empirically observable and although way back even in ancient times it was considered that some people men had more superior souls than other people women uh, they were gradations in a shared property that wasn't even remotely visible to the uh, the naked eye in the 17th century when empirical science started mobilizing against theology as a ground for political power, the concept of race was introduced always by European observers, uh, by French, by German, by Dutch thinkers, by Swedish thinkers, who began classifying the human population on the basis of geography and color. And if you read the history of some of these scientific treatises, some people claim that there are four races, some people claim there are three races, some people claim there are five races, but critical uh, variables involve geographic region, so Amer Indians in North America, Africans calling a whole continent black, uh, Asians, which was another one of these categories that was created that went all the way from the Middle East to China and Japan. So huge swaths of the human population were aggregated into groups and called, you know, white, black, yellow, red. And these labelings were supposedly descriptive. They were supposed to supposed to be capturing species characteristics. But if you read the way that these descriptions were articulated by these European scientists, it was not just color and geographic origin that was being described. It was mental aptitude. So Caucasians or white people were described as superior intellect, capable of self-control, capable, capable of democratic governance, and contrasted with uh, yellow people or Mongol people, people from you know, this generic construction of Asia, who were said to be 
governed by desire, governed by passion, incapable of self-control, requiring authority over them. And they were too contrasted with black people, homo africanus, that was characterized as kinky hair, flat-nosed, libidinous, and childlike, no control, needing to be absolutely directed by a civilized force. So this construction of race was from the get-go an imperial project that described human beings according to a vast hierarchy that put black people at the bottom, not simply because of the color of their skin, but because scientists were claiming that that pigmentation, what Frantz Fanon called epidermalization, signified a way of humanity that lacked moral capability, that lacked uh, intellectual capability, that lacked possibilities for self-control and self-regulation. So it was a moral hierarchy, and it was all circulated as part of a justification for colonization, a justification for white people traveling to distant lands, using brutal force to impose labor orders, to impose political regimes, to dispossess indigenous people. So these racial categorizations were nowhere near neutral by any stretch of the imagination. They were technologies of power. They were used for profoundly destructive projects, all of which were justified as a civilizing mission. And what's kind of surprising when you think about how political science continues to characterize the world, even though it has moved beyond that kind of absolutely blatant racism, it still creates these uh, continua. So Europe and the United States are supposed to represent models of democratization, self-governance, electoral systems that are competitive, peaceful transfers of power, active participation of the population. And they're compared to democratizing countries, which are countries on the way to having that property that's ascribed to North America and European nations, or authoritarian regimes, which are not quite democratizing, or rogue states that are doing brutal things in the world and refusing the civilizing impulse. So even though the specific categories of description have changed, the world is still being racialized, described on a continuum from primitive or traditional to sophisticated, cosmopolitan, advanced, and white European and North American. So racialization is happening both in history, as you trace scientific racism from the 17th century to the 20th century, but it also gets encoded in descriptions of the political world that continue to circulate, and descriptions of the economic world, and some of the UN categories, 
refer to advanced economies, again, Europe and the United States, versus far less advanced economies. So there is constantly a telos uh, where the US and Europe are the culmination of Cuban experience and all other countries are assumed to be on the path to that telos, to that goal, and somewhere inferior in their own development. So what critical race and feminist theory and decolonial theory and post-colonial theory gives us is a clear attention to processes of racialization and gendering and sexualization that occur in historical time, but that get rendered invisible by the language that's used by mainstream science, including mainstream economics, political science, uh, sociology. So they come up with descriptors that sound neutral and value-free, but replicate these hierarchies that have been introduced to legitimate colonizing and neo-colonizing practices and to shore up the power of the colonizing part of the world and naturalize the disadvantage that is imposed on the colonized. If we can perhaps kind of pursue this line of thought even a little bit further, could you explain to us what the idea of methodological nationalism is? Is another one of these kinds of categories that is supposedly neutral, but in your argument in the book, is reproducing these um, hierarchical and colonial patterns? I think if you read most school books from little kids in elementary and secondary school, as they're introduced to the world, they're introduced to the world as made up of, um, oh, if you use UN categories, just about 200 nations. Nations are taken as the fundamental category in the world. And nations are described as a people with a shared culture, with a shared heritage, with a shared language. Uh, nations are, in that sense, naturalized. They're depicted as if they always existed, that they're not a, a historical artifact. And they're depicted as creating natural units of belonging. So within a nation, there's supposed to be fellow feeling. You care about the members of your nation. You care about your fellow citizens. You are a people. Um, I guess it's the U.S. dollar that still says one nation under God. Uh, lots of nationalist talk suggests chosen people. Each people has a special relationship to, to the divine. They have a special mission in the world. So from the time kids are very young, they're taught to think about nations not as political constructs, not as the result of a war system, conquest, the Treaty of Westphalia, not as a political artifact, but as something that brings people together, ties them to a territory, to a place on the globe, to part of the earth, and gives them an entitlement to that piece of land or that part of the world. So it's a remarkably ahistorical, or you might even say dehistoricized account. And it mystifies how nations have come into being, 
and how certain kinds of power configurations like colonialism that carved out huge swaths of the globe, gave names to people, drew boundaries around particular geographic spaces, have produced a world where nationalism is a driving force, a force for war making, and a force for war legitimating. So political science, very much like textbooks in elementary schools, take nation states as given. Don't question where they came from or whether they are permanent entities uh, under the rubric of simply describing the world as it exists. Political scientists say, well, we study nation states. Uh, if we're studying economies, we use gross national product, the economy of a nation. It becomes naturalized as a, a unit of analysis. If we're studying voting practices, we study within nations. If we're studying comparative politics, we're studying, we're studying how things go from one nation to another. If we're studying international relations, we're looking at how diplomacy, institutions, cooperation and conflict function among states, among state nations. So the discipline takes it for granted that the political category par, par excellence, perhaps, is the nation state. And what critical race and post-colonial theory want to do is problematize the existence of modern nations, trace their historical creation, show how narratives of the nation homogenize certain people, suggesting that they have ties that are natural when in fact they are altogether artificial. So again, just to give an example from the United States, uh, narratives of the United States do at least acknowledge that the nation was born in war. So it was a revolutionary war supposedly against the British crown. It was a war for freedom. But what that narrative masks is that that was a war conducted between settler colonialists and the crown that initially authorized the settlement, but it masks the war that the settlers fought against indigenous peoples that not only uh, led to the annihilation of huge numbers of indigenous peoples, but appropriated the land of those indigenous people. Uh, our constitution said that members of indigenous nations could not be U.S. citizens because supposedly they were already members of their own nations, the Cree, the Cherokee, the Lenape. So we forged treaties with indigenous nations, but then we violated those treaties. We displaced the indigenous people. We either used forced marches to drive them west or we exterminated them. That gets rendered invisible when you talk about national belonging. The earliest citizenship acts passed in the United States, the Nationality Act of 1790, literally defines the United States as a white male nation. Only white men of property were considered citizens. No one else was allowed participation in the project. And although 
immigration policy through most of the 19th century allowed free migration of people from various parts of the world. As the concern with racialized others grew, the U.S. started passing things like the Chinese Exclusion Act to preclude people from China from coming to the United States. Um, China got morphed into a notion of Asian exclusion. So under the rubric of the Chinese Exclusion Act, Japanese were also excluded, Filipinos were excluded, this enormous notion of South Asia, East Asia, everybody being the same kind of person were used for exclusionary purposes. So the law was used to grant citizenship to a particular cohort of uh, privileged white men, but the language of nation makes it sound like those white men had something in common. Um, actually, they didn't. They didn't have religion in common. They didn't necessarily have uh, language in common. Uh, you know, one of the colonies of North America was Quebec, a French-speaking nation. Some of the, the founding states towards the south had Spanish populations. So the language of nation creates a myth of a people and ignores the huge work of nation building, a kind of work that includes some and marginalizes others. So it misses that whole power dynamic. And critical race and decolonial, postcolonial theory wants to make that power dynamic visible because the consequences are so huge for the marginalized. Thank you. And now if we perhaps start to turn to the end of the interview a little bit, and this is kind of something that's been, it's a theme of the book as a whole. It's been a theme of our conversation here. But the last chapter of the book is called Revisioning Power, Reclaiming Politics. So in that spirit of revisioning and reclaiming, I was wondering if you could maybe uh, help us start to conclude by thinking about how in expanding the contours of the political, as you call it, there's a transformative potential in more intersectional attention to embodied power and kind of what might that change? What is that transformative potential for uh, the study of politics? Well, part of the final chapter draws on the work of African-American feminist scholars who have thought very deeply about intersectionality and how structures of power grounded in racialization, gendering, nationality are mutually constitutive. So I draw on their work to give some tips to political scientists about how to begin to avoid these conceptual practices of power like methodological individualism and methodological nationalism that make it so difficult to see embodied power, these state practices that create hierarchies of difference. But I also spend a little bit of time thinking about how our understanding of politics changes when you start examining the political world from a more inclusive framework. Instead of focusing only on privileged white men and more recently privileged white men and women, you start thinking about all the people who are disadvantaged in the system 
I mean, one of the things you become aware of is what you call what I consider a, a politics of exclusion. Um, the state actively excludes certain people from full members of citizenship, uh, even though we have a language of formal equality. And you don't have to look any further than the ongoing political campaign, the way that Muslim American citizens have been marginalized and discussed as if they are somehow enemies of the nation where they are voting members. That kind of marginalization is a politics of exclusion. Uh, discussions about Mexican American citizens, US citizens born in this country, their family living on territories in the South for hundreds of years, constructed in terms of massively negative stereotypes. So that kind of politics of exclusion you can deal with when you can name it, as opposed to just kind of thinking, well, something's not right there. I mean, we are all equal, so how do we make sense of it? So a politics of exclusion, politics of intimacy. Uh, women of color who are from economically marginalized areas often work more hours a week than white women, even though they're constructed to use Ronald Reagan's terms as welfare queens. So the way that women of color work, their contributions to society, the challenges they face, the particular harms they face by intrusive state practices um, begin to coalesce when you have language of politics of intimacy. Uh, Low-income African-American women have been subjected to merciless policies of having their children removed from them. If they work too many hours, they're not home after school, that can be called neglect. It can be grounds for losing your child. Uh, they can be subjected to certain kinds of birth control intervention that grows out of a long history of sterilization abuse. That kind of politics of intimacy is a dimension of politics that is often not studied in contemporary American politics. So in thinking about how to reconceptualize the political world, I'm trying to suggest we need to think about micro practices, we need to think about macro practices, we need to think about how politics involves processes of racialization, gendering and sexualization that happen not only within the home and within workplaces and within nation states, but that have very powerful reverberations in macroeconomic policies under neoliberalism around the globe. And we need a vocabulary that helps us see continuity in those processes and how multiple structures of power are operating in the world that have been naturalized within the discipline at large. Thank you. This is about an incredibly illuminating conversation for me and I imagine for the listeners as well, but I was wondering if there is anything we did not get the chance to discuss from the book that you would especially like to highlight for the listeners. Well, I think you've asked terrific questions and have helped me give have a chance to give a snippet of what the book is about to possible readers. So I'm just very grateful that you have taken this time to chat with me. Well, I'm grateful for your time as well. And with that, I, I'll ask you the, the customary final question of the New Books Network, and that is to uh, tell us a bit about what you're currently working on. Well, my current project is the first time I've ever been involved in archival research. 
uh, trained as a political theorist, we don't usually go into the archives. True. But oh. the Women's College at Rutgers University, Douglas College, is going to be 100 years old in 1918. And I am working with two wonderful colleagues, Kaio Denda at, um, and Fernanda Pernone, Fern Fernanda Perone, both of the Rutgers University Libraries, to write a history of this woman's college, which was founded in 1918 in the state of New Jersey. So at a time when the suffrage battle was still fighting, it was the first state-supported school to admit women in a northern state that now has a reputation for being pretty progressive, but was anything but progressive in the early 20th century. So we are tracing the battle to create this college, the image of womanhood that was instantiated in the early years, how that changed over time. Uh, as you can imagine, the entering class of 1918 was 54 white women from New Jersey. Now Douglas has 74% women of color. It is enormously diverse. It's a spectacular student population. So we're trying to tell the story of how we shifted from uh, a privileged college for a particular kind of white woman student to being a college that welcomes, celebrates, and, uh, participates in great conversations with a very diverse student population, the, the population of the U.S. in the 21st century. Well, it sounds so fascinating and also a kind of unique way of taking some of the um, conceptual and disciplinary work that you're doing in this book and putting it in that historical and archival and educational context. So um, that sounds like an excellent project. Thank you for sharing that. And uh, more broadly, Mary, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It was a real treat to get to talk with you. Thank you again, John. I really appreciated the conversation.